Hello and welcome to episode seven of From Paper to People. It's Ancestors Alive Genealogies podcast. I am your hostess with the mostess, Carolyn Neelachlan, and I'm glad you're here with me. This week, I can report that 24 out of 50 states in the U.S. are listening, in addition to countries all over the world, and that, yes, I am very psyched. It's Valentine's Day, a day on which we remember that in the year 269 or 278, depending on who you read and who you talk to, Emperor Claudius II beheaded a priest. Somehow that's supposed to make us all think of love and romance, but I really don't get it myself. In fact, I find this to be the single most annoying holiday of the year. I'm hypoglycemic, so chocolates are just little chewy invitations to an insulin coma. I've been divorced since the dinosaurs roamed. And worst of all, I look terrible in red. So when national spend your cash on stale chocolates, glib little candy hearts, flowers that die in two days, and $7 cards in the name of the patron saint of beekeeping, epilepsy, the plague, greetings, hence the cards, I guess, happy marriages, love, lovers, fainting, traveling, and young people knocks on my door. I'm playing possum. I'm not home for that. Instead, I watch hospital dramas, crime shows, and contemplate death. But hey, that's just me. You do you, my friends. I do hope that doing you means joining me in my holiday extravaganza excursion into my second favorite kind of record, death-related records. Today, I'm only going to discuss two kinds, social security records and indexes, and the death certificates and indexes that are the font of life itself in genealogy. We'll talk about wills, probates, find a grave, other kinds of stuff like that on another day. But today, it's just social security and death records themselves. Now, this may sound a bit macabre, but as I work on family trees, I find myself spending a lot of time wishing that people were dead. It's not a grudge thing, and it's not as bad as it sounds. It's embedded in the work of genealogy. As I'm working on a tree in recent generations, I find myself praying that I will find that every person in that generation has died. Why? Dead folks are so much easier and more fun to research than live people. Death generates multiple records that inform about names, dates, and places for two or even three generations of a family just in one record. There are more records to view and thus greater access to facts, all because somebody dies. First, let's handle some terminology. What is the difference between a death index and a death certificate? An index is a list. Each record, a death, is on a single line in a big list of a series of deaths. These indexes are created by the county of the death for record-keeping purposes. A certificate, on the other hand, is a document that provides detailed information about a single death. A single page is devoted to a single birth or death, we're talking about deaths, only as opposed to one line on a list with a whole bunch of other names. Second, there's a little strategy that goes into weighing the relative values of various records. Human memory is the least reliable resource for facts, so records created at the moment of an event are most useful. Records created closer to the event are preferable to those created further away in time. And records created at death listing birth information may not be reliable for that birth information, even though they have the best information available for the death. Always consider when the record was made in relation to the death 
to decide how true it may be, particularly in terms of death date and death location. The first thing to think about when considering any record's relative value is its origin. Simply adding information to your tree because it looks right or because it's part of a rote exercise of click and add, click and add, is not best practice. When evaluating a record, don't just look at the data it provides. First, ask yourself six key questions about the creation and use of a record. When, where, how, why, for whom, and what. As you consider each class of death records, you'll see how to assess the relative truthfulness or reliability of each one or of each piece of data within each record. Think about your tree like it's a black wall and you want to paint that black wall neon pink. What do you have to do? First, you're going to have to put on multiple coats of white. Even if you're using kills, honestly, kills doesn't do it in just one coat. You're going to have to add more than one. First, just to knock down the black so that you have an unshadowed, pure white wall. And then after it's white, you're still going to have to add a few layers of pink to make that color solid and clean and bright. Adding each record to your tree, assessing and valuing its individual merits and drawbacks, allows you to layer on the information until you've assured yourself that you have the best possible answers to questions concerning the where's and when's of an individual's life, relationships, and death. I'm going to call these questions the six W's. So to begin, these are the six W's of Social Security records. One, when are they created? Social Security records are created within days or weeks of the death of a person. Two, where are they created? At the Social Security office serving the last known address of the decedent, not the actual location of the death. Three, how are they created? As a result of the official recording of death by a county. Four, why are they created? multiple reasons, but chief among them is to stop provision of Social Security checks and other government benefits to the decedent. This means that the government has a compelling interest in getting these records right because you know they don't want to give out any money that they don't have to. Five, for whom are they created? This is very important. Social Security creates these records for its own record-keeping purpose. They are not designed for public consumption, though they can be used through online services and ordered through the Social Security office itself. Thus, the addresses provided and sometimes the names contain errors. The only really important facts in all of those provided on these records are the death date and the Social Security number itself. Otherwise, you are going to find small problems or errors here and there. And six, what do they provide? Names, addresses, dates, and we'll get further into that in a minute. Your better source of the two Social Security records types that are provided on Ancestry.com is called the U.S. Social Security Applications and Claims Index. It gives more data. It includes name, or for women, names including maiden and married names, if you're lucky, gender, race, birth date, birthplace, death date, father's name, mother's name, social security number, and notes. And in the notes section, you can find a lot of things. Basically, it shows the dates of name changes on the social security record as they pertain to that particular social security number. 
This can be very useful if a man switches from using initials to full names or if he goes by an alias. In the case of women, it can give you a rough idea of a marriage date. When I changed my surname after my marriage, for instance, I did so directly after the wedding. And I think that most women do. So absent a marriage record for an individual, I use the name change date from the Social Security Applications and Claims Index to create a putative marriage date and a husband using that surname. It can help Ancestry to pull up records for the woman that you're looking after. There's another collection, and it's called the U.S. Social Security Death Index. It's a list, as I said, an index is a list rather than a full page per person record, and it provides the following. Name, social security number, last residence, which is the permanent residence where checks have been sent, a good hint as to the death location, since many people die either at home or at a local hospital, birth date, last benefit, and that's where the last check was sent. Maybe not it's uh, not a permanent residence, maybe it's the, uh, the location of a short-term care facility or a family member's home. And then we have the death date and the state and year the social security number was issued. These last two can help you to see something about where your ancestor lived when he or she reached working age which can help you in turn to decide whether this social security record actually does pertain to your ancestor or another person who lived at roughly the same time with roughly the same name. It can also show you that your ancestor might have migrated during his or her working life, which in turn may open the door to records that seemed implausible before, but that with the issuance information may actually pertain to your ancestor. Now we're going to talk about my favorite record in the world, death certificates. I do love me some death certificates. Since the Social Security Act of 1935 was passed in, you guessed it, 1935, anyone who died before 1935 will not have his or her own Social Security number and record. The parents of a Social Security recipient will appear on the recipient's record, but only by name. While that can take you back a generation to parents born as early as the 1850s, and it can also give you the maiden name of the mother of the decedent, you can't get specific information on somebody who died before 1935 without the death certificate. But even for those who died after the 1935 Social Security Act became law, death certificates are the most data-rich death record available to researchers. So we're going to start with our six W's of death certificates. One, when are they created? At the time of death. Two, where are they created? At the hospital or institution that doubles as the place of death or at the place where a dead body was taken at the time of death. This record is the best record for the actual location of the death because it is made on site. Whatever else you may find about death location, the location provided here on a death certificate supersedes all other information available. Please remember that. Three, how are death certificates created? The hospital or the institutional registrar takes information from the medical records and an informant, a neighbor, a friend, or a family member of the decedent. Four, why are they created? To provide an official record because government has a compelling interest in tracking mortality rates and mortality causes among the population. Five, for whom are they created? For the county 
and for the state and for the family of the decedent to make death official with various parts of government, landlords, banks, courts, and all manner of officials with whom the decedent would have had business in life. If you've ever had somebody in your family die and you've had to take care of any part of their affairs, you know that you need like 10 or 20 copies of the death certificate just to even remotely adequately prove that the person that you're doing the work for has actually died. So that's why. Six, what do they provide? Names, addresses, dates, all kinds of good stuff. We're going to get there in a minute. So I'm going to use an actual death certificate to explain to you what it is that it can do for you. I'm looking specifically at someone who is married into my family, married a cousin, and um, I didn't know her maiden name. I knew his name because he is my cousin. So I looked it up. It's a Texas death certificate. And if you look at other certificates, I have a, an Indiana one in front of me. I have a South Carolina. These things do vary somewhat from state to state because every state has the right to create its own code pertaining to record keeping, management of population information. They're a lot the same, though. They're really based on the same kind of common law dating back hundreds of years. So here we are. We have first... The state is provided, of course. We've got Texas. It's the place of death, county, uh, the city or town, Amarillo. Um, then we have the name of the institution, which was High Plains Baptist Hospital. And they say, is the place of death inside city limits? Yes or no? And that's because folks die out in the country, and sometimes people bring in bodies and say, here, my relative died, and can you register the death for me? So uh, two, usual residence. They ask for the state, the county, the city, and the street address. That can actually be kind of fun because you can look up the street address on Google Maps. And if you're fortunate and the house or apartment building hasn't been torn down, you can actually find pictures of the places where your relatives and ancestors lived. And that's pretty cool. Here, too, they ask, is the residence inside city limits, yes or no? And is the residence on a farm, yes or no? Now, this is where it starts to get good. We have the name of the deceased. Now, I knew this already because it's her married name, Margaret Edna Durrett. And the date of her death was October 20th of 1970. And that's part of the reason why I picked this uh, particular certificate, because it's typed. <laughs> Other ones have scary handwriting on them, but this is typed, so it's easy to read. Then it asks for the sex, female, the color or race, white. This is very important. There are plenty of people who are white, plenty of people who are called mulatto or negro, plenty of people who are Native American, plenty of people who are black, who all have the same name and lived in roughly the same places at roughly the same times. So please be sure to pay attention to things like race, because these things are identifying for an individual. Very important. Then it asks about marriage. You've got married, never married, widowed, or divorced. She was married. Date of birth. That's always very handy. And this is very specific. October 17th of 1894. It gives her age in years if it was her just her last birthday. And that is what they give. 76 years old. Then it asks for her occupation. She was a housewife. The kind of business or industry. Domestic. Then it gives the birthplace. Now, you have to remember... This is 76 years after she was born, and obviously, because she is deceased, she's not giving the information. 
So the information about her birthplace is coming from the informant. And the informant could be a relative or a neighbor, the person who brought in the body, who knows? It could take a while for a body to be identified. So it could be that this information is off slightly. So remember when you're taking birthplace information and even birth date information from a death certificate that it might be wrong or it might be approximated. Nevertheless, they're fairly specific here and they say she was born in Bastrop County, Texas in the United States. Now, this is where it gets good. We're talking about a woman, a married woman, and all we have is her married name, Margaret Edna Duret. Now, when I was looking at her, I didn't have her maiden name yet. So it asks for her father's name, James C. Newton. Automatically, I know now we're speaking ancestry to ancestry. We're speaking genealogy. Margaret's real name is Margaret Edna Newton. So I can take Durrett in parentheses out of the line for her surname in ancestry. I no longer need to provoke ancestry into giving me records about her maiden name. It's right here in her death certificate. And then it gets even better. Mother's maiden name, Sophronia Ann Kemp. Now I can go back a full generation on Margaret's family. And I can add James C. Newton and Sophronia Ann Kemp as her family members. Then it asks if the deceased was ever in the U.S. Armed Forces. She was not, and most women of her age group were not. And uh, actually, there is a wonderful Indiana uh, certificate of death that I have here as well, dating from 1945, and it asks if veteran name war. And uh, this is for somebody that I'm doing uh, research on for a book, a guy named Thomas Philip Eisenhut. And it turns out he was in the Spanish-American War, and I didn't know that. So that's another piece of information that I never would have gotten if I hadn't looked at a death certificate. Then we go into the causes of death, and this can get pretty sad and depressing. But what it asks for is the immediate cause, and then what was that cause due to, and then if there were secondary or tertiary causes of death. Um, It asks about the interval between onset and death and the length of the underlying condition or conditions that brought the death about. Then we have other significant conditions contributing to death, but not related to the terminal disease condition given. And those can be all different kinds of things. It's an interesting way to learn whether or not there is heart disease or cancer or uh, stroke or Alzheimer's, or some other disorder in your family. Diabetes uh, at a generational level that you don't know about because it's somebody you never met. Then it asks whether or not there was an autopsy performed, and if it was an accident, suicide, or homicide, uh, if it's work-related, if the injury that was sustained, if it was indeed an injury, was sustained in the workplace. And in modern day, of course, that's key for workers' compensation. Then it says the time of the injury, how the injury occurred, etc., the place of the injury, uh, the city town location. It asks for a lot of very specific information about how an injury might have been incurred if it was not any form of natural death or illness-related death. Then this is where the doctor gets to sign off and says that I attended the deceased from date and time to date and time death occurred at time date. And then the doctor signs off. Now where the doctor signs off and the rest of this can be very, very interesting because uh, you may not know it 
but mm, perhaps your family had an attending physician. And this is a great place to start to match that information up. If you look at this and other death certificates from members of your family in a given locale, you might find that there is a doctor's office, in fact, where there could be some records. Um, and it's just, it's incidental. It's not necessarily, uh, I wouldn't say that you're, you're definitely going to go and be able to find the doctor who attended your great-grandmother. I'm not saying that so much as it gives you more of a picture of what this person's life was like, and that be, can be kind of cool. Um, it gives the address of the doctor as well. And then it gives the burial, cremation, or removal. You have to specify that in Texas anyway. And it says removal. And then the date, October 21st. So she died on, where was it? The 17th. No, she died on the 20th of October, and her body was removed the next day. And then it says, where is it going, basically? It says, name the cemetery or the crematory, and it's going to Panhandle Cemetery. So Margaret was delivered to Panhandle Cemetery in Panhandle, Texas, to the, and I'm trying to read it, I think it says Postal, Postel Funeral Home, and the funeral home director has to sign off on it. And then there's some file numbers and things like that, and those file numbers can be useful to you as well. Um, I think the most important thing here, though, is the informant's name. In this case, it was her husband, and it even says, Raymond Durrett, husband. That's very helpful because her husband probably knows fairly well where she was born. He knew her for a long time. So you can count the information about her date of birth and her birthplace as not dispositive, but a pretty good guideline to what the actual truth was. There are other little bits of information that are involved in other states' death certificates, but basically that's what you've got. And it's an awful lot of information. It can be very helpful at a lot of levels. It can also provide substantiation to family myths, the way that my great-great-uncle uh, Charlie and great-great-aunt Fanny's birth, uh, excuse me, death certificates did for them. Uh, you may remember from an earlier episode that they were supposed to have um, died sort of together. He died after a really terrible explosion and in grief over his death, she walked home, picked up a pistol, and committed suicide. And that was a that story was apocryphal. We didn't have any proof at all until I finally did isolate where they died. And in fact, that is what the death certificates say. And it also shows, looking at the two of them, that they died an hour apart. She killed herself an hour after he did, in fact, die of these terrible injuries. So these death certificates, you know, they give data. And that's good. We love data. But they also give the spirit of what was going on. They give a snapshot of life. And that's very, very important, too. Remember, while I really believe in facts, I also believe in folklore. And I believe that the two can work together hand in hand. And that is why I love death certificates so much. Finally, we have death indexes. And they support all of the data that you can find every place else. And they support the data from the death certificate itself. So here are the six W's of death indexes. One, when are they created? Directly after the time of death. They're usually printed out in a book um, and it's done by the month. Two, where are they created? At the county level. First, the hospital or the institution where the death occurred or where it was reported, that 
institution creates the death certificate. Then they turn around and they report it to the county. The county then makes the index. Three, how is the index created? From the death certificate. Four, why are they created? To provide a shorthand official record, again, because the government has a compelling interest in tracking mortality rates among its population. Five, for whom are they created? These records are created for governmental purposes only. Basically, in older days when things weren't computerized, they went into like a two-ring binder, a giant binder, and they were sitting on a shelf somewhere for someone to use. Please note that they are created at the county level, both the death certificate and the death index. If the index says Marion, Indiana, assume that it means Marion County and not Marion, the town that is in Grant County, Indiana, which is in a different part of the state. I see a lot of mistakes that show an ancestor moving around right at the time of death because the researcher didn't pay attention to the nature of the data being provided in associated death records. Six, what do they provide? Supporting information for death certificates come from the death index and refining information for social security records when you're doing your own work. Among other data, because record keeping differs from state to state, death indexes can provide a decedent's name, death date, death county, gender, and marital status. So what have we learned today? You have to pay attention to the when, where, how, why, for whom, and what of every record you examine. Death records are a great source for many things. And I didn't say this strongly enough, perhaps, but they are maybe best for finding the maiden names of female decedents and those female decedents and male decedents mothers. And finally, Valentine's Day sucks. See why I wish more people were dead? Thanks so much for listening. If you podcast and you want original theme music like mine, email my good friend Kurt Brady at curtisbrady at yahoo.com. Tell him I sent you and he can hook you up with rock, blues, country, folk, pretty much any style that you can think of. If you have a concept or a music sample, give it to him. He can write, play, record, and give you exactly what you want and need. As for me, I'm around. You can find me online at AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com and on Facebook at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. Follow me on Twitter at Ancestors Alive and on Instagram at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. If you have a request, a dispute, a book recommendation, or a question for the mailbag, you can contact me at ancestorsalivegenealogy at gmail.com. And in case you haven't been paying attention, don't forget, you have from now until this upcoming Sunday to get Ancestry DNA for $69 plus tax and shipping. That's about $79 altogether, and that is $30 off the normal price. So if you've been thinking about getting your DNA tested and tying it to your tree, now is a great time to do it. You can always get 10% off through me, but hey, get the 30 bucks off while you can. And finally, you can support this podcast on Patreon and you can win or earn valuable prizes while doing it. Go to patreon.com slash ancestors alive and sign up for any of five support levels ranging from $5 to $25 per month. I need that financial support to keep this virtual classroom going. Have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Keep asking questions and above all, expect surprises.